Welcome back to VMP Anthology, the story of Blue Note Records. I'm your host, Andrew Winnestorfer. On this, the second episode, Bop Calling, I talk with Don Waz, president of Blue Note Records, about the first two albums you'll be receiving in VMP Anthology, Horace Silver's Horace Silver Trio and Dexter Gordon's Dexter Calling, two albums that represent the bebop and hard bop eras of Blue Note Records. In this episode, we talk about how the loose, free-flowing culture at Blue Note let Horace Silver cut his first solo record when another performer had to back out of a session, and how Dexter Gordon made up for lost time following a prison sentence. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast for hints about the next two records in VMP Anthology. The pianist Taurus Silver is an immensely important figure in mid-20th century jazz, an absurdly prolific performer who cut dozens and dozens of records into old age. Known for his impact on the genre of bop, his hard-charging piano style will be imitated across jazz. We picked Horace Silver Trio, his debut as a bandleader, to represent the bebop era, largely because it's a fulcrum record, the point where Silver and his drummer, Art Blakey, went off into different expressions of bop, hard bop, and post bop. This is a record that captures two of the most prolific Blue Note artists on the precipice of what's next. And ultimately, that's the story of why Blue Note is the best jazz label of all time. It always captured what was coming next. Jazz as a whole was like moving in this direction, and mm-hmm. these records are like slices of that. The slices of that, yeah, and and some like the Horace Silver record. Uh, it's the trio. It's just the trio, and yeah, I mean, he's kind of well known for playing with larger groups with horns. So the trio is him and Art Blakey. One, about a year before they formed the Jazz Messengers, mm-hmm. which birthed uh, hard bop and mm-hmm. totally changed the face of the music. Uh, so it catches them as they're leaning into it, but not quite there yet. Right. And it's a really intimate glimpse, because, especially because it's trio. You never really get to hear Horace Silver play like he plays uh, in a trio situation on, on most of his records. And it's a glimpse into how, and how they both subsequently evolve from this. It's interesting to see this moment, because it's not... It's not a pure bebop record, but it catches the exact second before it turned into hard bop. Right. And you can hear that in there. You can hear how, uh, first of all, how tight these two guys are together, how well they play together. And you can hear Horace playing bebop which you don't really get to hear in the later records because he got funky. You know, and the whole thing about hard bop, you know, and I, I hate using some of these terms, they're so broad, but for the sake of uh, knowing what we're talking about, mm-hmm. we'll stick with it. But hard bop, I guess you could just say, was it kind of introduced elements of church and funk into this otherwise rigid world of bebop. Right. Beautiful music, but. By 1953, people, the musicians were getting tired of adhering to the principles. And Art Mm -hmm. Blakey wanted to start playing some backbeats. And Horace Silver wanted to throw some funky stuff in there. And this is 
right before, but, right. but hinting at it. And it's a, just a beautiful glimpse. There, there's some stuff. Percy Heath is playing bass. It's three days, basically. It, it's two days in October 1952, and then... Uh, Another one a year later, November of 53. Mm -hmm. And Percy Heath is on that 1953 date. And I love the way the the three of them kind of mesh together. But it's it's a great glimpse. Also, there's something else about it. It was recorded... Unlike the other records, that, at, which were recorded by one guy, Rudy Van Gelder, had mm-hmm. his two different studios that he had over the years. This was recorded at uh, WOR, which is a radio station. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's, you know, if you listen to, you should listen to a, a Blue Note record called Free For All that Art Blakey cut. Sure. He's playing so loud. <laughs> it's so muscular that it almost sounds like a punk rock record. It sounds like the MC5. Okay. <laughs> its drums are just distorted, and it's great. It's awesome. And uh, Art Blakey had, you know, if you heard him live, he was loud, you know, and he played, he had a lot of power in his playing. But I guess you couldn't do that at this radio station, or they didn't have the mics to get it. So it's, is really getting this kind of close-up of his drums without all the room sound that later, you know, Van Gelder would so expertly right. uh, uh, integrate into the into the mixes. So it's a real, uh, yeah, it's a it's a real snapshot, very clear snapshot of what these two guys were up to in that, right. in that period. It also it's some of the first recordings of uh, some of Horace's greatest songs, Horoscope. Uh, Ecaro, I guess it's a, it's Horace backwards. I don't know. How you it. <laughs> Opus de Funk is on there. Bruhena, you know. So mm-hmm. it's a first look at at these great songs that he wrote. Right, and this one, you know, like for history buffs, like Lou Donaldson was supposed to leave yes, a good. four a four piece mm-hmm. session yep. a couple of days before he has to call and cancel and say I can't make the dates, yep. and instead of bailing on it, Horace Silver is like, I got this. Like, we're going in, yeah. we're going to record sessions. Yeah. And, you and know, also, it's a, it's a testimony to the spirit of Alfred Lyon. You right. Know, that, that they he were just, just like, like, yeah, sure, yeah. we'll switch up. I like your songs. <laughs> yeah. But they were, he was ready to do this. Yeah. That's a, that's a great aspect of this thing. Yes. You know, that feels like this is almost like Horace Silver's opportunity. Yeah. He's like, this is it. And then yeah. after this record, you know, like you said, he goes all the different directions that he mm-hmm. ends up going in his career. But this is sort of like the point where, you know, he yeah. takes control. That's, that's it. It's, yeah, meet Horace Silver. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and like I guess Horace Silver feels like an artist that a, if you just have sort of a surface level knowledge of the classics of Blue Note, mm-hmm. you maybe haven't gotten to him. But he, you know, may have been like one of the defining artists of the 50s and up and to the 60s. mid 60s yeah, yeah. yeah really into the 70s he even you know he, he made some wild music at the end of the 60s and, and into the 70s with vocals some of those things with Andy Bay singing that are you know they're out there man but they're really cool but yeah he he I think he's recorded more albums than any artist for Blue Note yeah and I think may have been on more sessions than anybody yeah, too yeah, right yeah, yeah. 
And yeah, I think you mentioned this already too. The uh, the fact that this is in some ways like the start of the jazz messengers, mm-hmm. who would also become this you know hugely influential and important group. You yeah, know, continually, like in, like cyclically, introduce new musicians who would change the face of music over and over and over again. But yeah, and so, who yeah. came through? Like, can you just list off the top of your head people that came oh, through yeah, the jazz yeah, messengers? Wayne Shorter, Lee Morgan. Uh, we were up to Terrence Blanchard, Winton. I mean, just, I think everybody, uh, you know, it's a really long list, yeah. It's almost like compulsory service in jazz. It's like you have to, you got to do your time with with art in the jazz messengers. Well, yeah, you could you could certainly look at it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it as a negative, the, the but like, yeah. of jazz. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I will say this, it's testimony to uh, his mentorship. You know, that he had, first of all, that he recognized all these greats and then that he helped them to develop and nurtured them to leave and do their own thing. No, nobody quite like, actually, you can see Terrence Blanchard doing that today. Terrence is a good buddy okay. of mine, Blue Note artist. And a lot of guys have come out of his band, a lot of guys who are on the label currently, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a it's a nice tradition. And it's an important part of uh, leadership, right? Uh, to to start a band and then allow people to fly once you've taught them some fundamentals, right? Yeah, yeah and Miles was that way too, obviously. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, I wonder what wonder what that says about jazz. That you know, like, I, I guess I don't understand. I don't know that there's a similar thing in rock music where you know, like, guitarists filter through you know some big band. That at least that I can think of off the top of my head. That's a that's a very good point. I'm 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 racing to think. When, when I was in high school, uh, I had a job selling eight track tapes <laughs> at Michigan Mobile Radio, the home of Crazy Jack. <laughs> and one day, the Jeff Beck group came in. Oh, they playing one. the yeah, Grandy yeah. Ballroom, and it was Ronnie Wood was playing bass. Rod Stewart was the lead singer. Nicky Hopkins was playing <laughs> keyboards, and they all came in and to buy. Eight track tapes. A lot of people pass through Jeff Beck, uh, but it's not quite like Art Blakey. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I guess like a thing too, you know, as we, you know, go along the evolution of jazz. I don't know that I can necessarily define what bebop is, but I know know it when I hear it. Right. Like, how do you deal with that with jazz? Because that feels like. When people are really, you know, like people get really in deep into jazz, it's like I really prefer the, you know, the soul jazz era. And that's, yeah. you know, we, we've broken up this box set that way. But like how do you kind of like think of these different eras slash genres in jazz music? Well, I, 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 I see it as a little more, even though it was, it started as a total revolt against, you know, the big bands and like some, like I think both Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie came out of Billy Eckstein's band, as mm-hmm. did Dexter Gordon. And, uh, you know, and I think they were revolting against reading charts and they wanted to play over the chord changes. And they, it's just a certain, it's the scales and the modalities of the notes that they chose and the way they played through the changes that I think characterize it. Uh, it's something you s- sort of feel more than, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's a technical explanation. But when you start moving away from it, it's the addition, it, it's all kind of rooted in that. Everything that you hear going on has, is filtered through um, bebop, but 
uh, uh, then I think it's just making a, uh, a more vibrant uh, jambalaya <laughs> of influences. Dexter Gordon, the totemic, powerful tenor saxophonist, started pushing bop music into more astral planes, adding to his jazz jambalaya dashes of soul music. He's one of the most singularly important jazz saxophonists ever, right up there with Coltrane, Wayne Shorter, Coleman Hawkins, and many more. Although he'd pushed the boundaries of genre and his form on later Blue Note albums, particularly 1962's Go, on Dexter Calling, he's performing textbook hard bop, which incorporated more blues to bebop than past versions. Recorded a mere three days after he recorded his Blue Note debut, which he recorded fresh out of jail on some charges related to his heroin addiction, Dexter Calling features music Gordon wrote for a play and starts to showcase one of his defining characteristics, the way that he could play off the beat and still be the nucleus of the music. kind of becomes of what you add in or what yeah. you take away yeah. from bebop yeah. that kind of defines yeah. so that's where why this box set starts with bebop yeah. is mm-hmm. that everything that we also in this box set the other five records yeah. sort of are rooted within this yes and that's so right. the next the next record in era is we're going to hard bop yeah uh where you start to see a lot of like you said earlier uh the funk and sort of like bluesy influence mm-hmm. really starts coming in. You get like yep. the heavy backbeat. Yeah. Um, and we have Dexter Gordon's Dexter Calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he uh, recorded this. This is his second record for Blue Note. Right. Recorded this just three days after recording his first one. You can never, <laughs> never accuse that. him of being lazy, I guess, <laughs> no, that's, right? That's like, yeah. May 9th, 1961. Yeah, Benny Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, th- this is a, almost the opposite. This is a a guy who was a bebop player, and and then uh, sort of had to take a little rest. And he was coming back, and he was going to try to uh, a- adapt to what was going on. This is now like ten years after the Horace Silver, right? Art Blakey yeah. record. And Dexter had a little bit of legal trouble. And yes, yeah, he wasn't just sitting home watching soap operas <laughs> yeah. in that decade. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the first song is a song called Soul Sister that really it's uh, just such an uh, archetypal blue note hard bop song, mm-hmm. you know, which it's got a groove to it. But he's still playing like Dexter. He's still got that sound. So he's he's. He's sitting on top of the funk, but playing the way he's always played. You mentioned him just like a couple of times as we're going through this. You know, this was recorded out with uh, Rudy Van Gelder Mm -hmm. in New Jersey. He is like maybe an unsung, I think people know him, but like an unsung important figure in Blue Note lasting 80 years because they have this like incredible, you know, recording producer out in New Jersey who's just like cutting, you know, his name's on... You know, almost every important jazz record. Well, that's that's the thing, man. He had this place. It's he started out recording. He was an optometrist who recorded in his parents' living room, I think in Hackensack or something like that. And then they just got tired of all these guys hanging out in the kitchen. <laughs> and he built this other studio, which is a beautiful studio, still there. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
that studio. I, I mean, I, I I went out there and met him when I got the job. I was so, it was like going to the holiest of holy <laughs> places because not only did he cut all the Blue Note records there, but he cut all the Impulse records there. Right. So I think the first question I had from him was, so where did Coltrane stand <laughs> when he cut Love Supreme? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he said, right there, same place as all the other saxophone players. <laughs> he, he had somewhat of a... Uh, he had a, a way of cutting it and a way of placing everybody. He said, you can stand there if you want. And so it's like, that's okay. Wayne Shorter, <laughs> Joe Henderson. All, you, you think about all the music that came through there. And he he would adapt the sound a little bit. He knew what Alfred Lyons' uh, preferences were, sonic preferences. And he was the architect of the Blue Note sound that you hear. Impulse Records sounded a little different, even though it was the same room, same guys, same mics. But mm -hmm. he, but you know, Bob Thiel wanted different mic, you know, different little different sound, you know, different uh -huh. approach to the reverb differently. So that there's a sound to the Impulse Records that's, that's different. He just changed the EQ on Thursdays, basically. <laughs> <laughs> when we started reissuing uh, all, uh, our uh, our catalog in in high res audio. It required, I had just started at, at Blue Note. So I thought, oh, great, man. This is the part of the job I've been looking forward to. I'm, so I went to the mastering room, and we and I actually requisitioned uh, Mode for Joe to be the first okay. tape to listen to. We put it up in the mastering room, and it didn't really sound. It, it sounded like, I mean, I knew it was the thing. It was beautiful, too, but it didn't. it was a different sound than what I remembered. It felt different. Uh -huh. It's a little more intimate, a little smaller. The guys sounded younger and not quite as powerful. And then I, I realized that how Rudy mastered the records was an equally important component in the sound. I guess like quick back to Dexter is yeah. he, you know, he did seven albums for Blue Note in four years, mm -hmm. which just feels like how do you work at that kind of a clip, you know, that he made these lasting records in a, you know, short period of time? Well, if you got a lot of, you know, I mean, I, I'm just, I, I don't, I didn't know him uh -huh. <laughs> and I wasn't there. I would speculate that the 10 years that he lost, he, he was still thinking about music and he had a lot that he wanted to accomplish. And remember today, people take all kinds of time making records. Some people do anyway, you know, and that you didn't have that luxury then. You had maybe one or two days. And Blue Note was a little more conscientious about it. Alfred would make you rehearse before you went out to Van Gelder's. There's a little rehearsal studio in Midtown Manhattan where everyone would work out the stuff so that they didn't waste time in mm -hmm. the studio. And that rehearsal paid off. Uh, that, I think that's another little thing about why the Blue Note catalog is so enduring is because it wasn't, they didn't just do another version of all the things you are. Right. Although we have versions of all the things you are. <laughs> uh -huh. But it wasn't just like some gig where you just played the standard and did a solo and collected your bread. Right. I think these all these guys had artistic visions. So my guess is that he cut seven records because he had uh, he had seven great ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and some of that Blue Note making, you know, like them making everybody rehearse was out of necessity in a way because they were an indie 
And yeah. you couldn't afford to, you know, send somebody into the studio just to fool around for, you know. Not if you wanted a certain quality. I mean, the, I won't even mention the other label, but the, there's, an, there's an old joke. What's the difference between okay. uh, that company and a Blue Note record? And the difference is one day of rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> because you can tell if people don't quite know the thing, then you're wasting time. Uh, and feels rushed, and or you you just don't dig deep inside. If you're worried about playing the melody right, it's tough to then relax into a, mm -hmm. into the solo. So they are a little more worked out. Yeah, yeah. And if he recorded this, you know, just a couple days after his debut, yeah. he must have been rehearsing and cutting records just I, back. To and back I think to it's back. a different band too. Really? Yeah, it's I don't amazing. think the, I don't think it's the same three guys. So maybe Dexter's rehearsing record. with two different bands in the same week. Must and have. goes out and cuts yeah. cuts records. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy to think about. Three of them were written for a, a theatrical presentation. Yeah, yeah, uh, this, a play that uh, he wrote about out here, I think, or a, yeah, he recorded yeah. music for out here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you don't really think of a jazz, you know, being cut for a play, but yeah, yeah. yeah I wish it happened more. Yeah. <laughs> So there you have it. That's the bebop and hardbop eras of Blue Note Records. In our next episode, which will come with the announcement of our next records, you'll learn about soul jazz and post-bop, two mid-60s eras of Blue Note that pushed jazz into new horizons. You can catch up with the discussion of these current titles over at our Facebook group, which you should have received an invite to in a separate email. This season of VMP Anthology is produced by Gabe Harder with help from Scott Gordon. I'm your host, Andrew Winnestorfer. Remember, listen to more jazz. And I bet you're wondering which albums we're sending you next, right? Don't worry, I didn't forget. Both artists have been previously mentioned on this very podcast, one of whom Don loves and the other of whom missed a recording session. Talk to you guys soon. <laughs>